0: This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. When faced with the challenges that life throws at you, be it a new job, a complete career change, entering into a new relationship with someone, or even becoming a parent, sometimes you may feel it's not working for you and you're a bit stuck. After all, life doesn't come with a user manual to help you navigate through things like this, does it? Now, at times in the past when I felt this way, I've personally found that talking to a professional for therapy has helped me no end with problems. Because therapists are trained to help you figure out what's causing these challenging emotions or stresses you may have. And so to help you learn the productive coping skills to help you make the complex engine called you better. And better help is a great option for you to do so. As the world's largest therapy service, BetterHelp has matched 3 million people with professionally licensed and vetted therapists available 100% online. Plus, it's affordable. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a therapist. If things aren't clicking, you can easily switch to a new therapist anytime it couldn't be simpler. No waiting rooms, no traffic, no endless searching for the right therapist. Learn more and save 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com slash TCE. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash TCE. Hello all, and the very warmest of welcomes back, after a short break, to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, North Wales' premier spare room-based one person and is every now and again chipping in cat that seeks out the tales of true crime that are often obscure, sensational, unbelievable, but all true from the darkest underbellies of the UK and Ireland. Bringing you these is myself, Paul, the creator, host and true crime enthusiast of the show's title. The hairy football, pixie, the true crime enthusi-cat is here as well as ever. And we're completed by yourselves, the wonderful enthusiasts who have gotten the show into its sixth year. It means as ever the world that you've joined me in the MOG today, which I thank you so kindly for doing so. And I do hope that as the episode finds you, it finds you and yours all good, all safe, and all well. As I said then, I'm back after a bit of a recharge and a break. The Lost Boys was some doing, I won't lie, and I appreciate all the comments, the feedback, and shares that I've had so far concerning it massive thanks out there folks i won't say too much here about the lost boys because i'll save my comments and thoughts about it really for the end of series review that i do each year where i just sit down and go back through the tales that i've covered in 2022 i haven't had a break from the patreon side of the show of course and though it wasn't the planned episode i brought out last the latest tale extreme dreams is now up and running with big thanks headed out to both the returning and new Patreon supporters of the show. And shout-outs here for new friends Darren McKenna, Nicholas Nixon, Nanu Walsdenhoom, Kay Mitchell, Angela Watt and Charlotte Turner, plus Penny Foster, Cassie and Tracy Daly, who have opted to annually support the show. Thank you so very much all, it's most kind of you to do so. Now, to hear this latest episode, Extreme Dreams, or some of the whole other series full of unreleased enthusiasts, and I'm talking episodes such as Peer Point's Last Drop, or Mr. Whiskers, The Butcher of Cumdy, or Strange Tales from the South, then to do so, you can be on it quicker than Elon Musk sacking a board, and it's easier than concluding instantly that The Masked Singer is absolute dog shit oh yes it's not missing my wrath at all that shamble of bollocks isn't not whatsoever simply head over to patreon and seek out the show there it's got the same logo and all that so you can't miss it just never forget that podcast suffix or there's a link that will take you right to it ever present in the episode show notes each time around This time around then on the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, and as we're rapidly approaching the end of series 7, we shall have the start of a run of some standalone tales before a two-part series finale. Well, it's two parts to date anyway. And though after the Lost Boys I did promise some lighter tales, it unfortunately doesn't always work out that way. As I've said before, some tales do seemingly choose themselves, and this is one of them. We head back somewhere we've been before on the show this time around, the town of Birkenhead on the Wirral in Merseyside, and to the early noughties for a truly senseless and tragic tale that will pose you the question, how much grief can one family go through? The episode contains details and descriptions of crimes and events that some listeners may find disturbing and or distressing, so please use discretion whilst you're listening in all. Bearing that in mind, please join the true crime enthusiasts for an episode that I've entitled Someone's Daughter, Someone's Mum The events that make up the episode you're about to hear will come shortly, but I'll begin with the frank and brutally honest words of a truly remarkable woman named Jean Taylor, the founder and chairperson of Liverpool-based charity Families Fighting for Justice and whose words will feature extensively throughout the episode. My days are spent fighting my fears and my ill health. Sleep comes in short bursts, and every day is a fight. But despite what's happened, I try to stay strong for my family. I grew up in Merseyside, and when I was 17, I left home to get married. My husband and I had three children, Thomas, Stephen and Natasha, but my marriage was unhappy and ended in 1974. Four years later, I married again and had Chantelle and Anthony. I was happy and I adored my family. Our home was always full of laughter, noise and the sounds of them playing together. But then, in 1998, my world was turned upside down. My younger sister Joyce had moved to London aged 17 to work as a nanny. She also married young, at 19, and had two children. We were close. Growing up, we'd shared a bed for a long time, but didn't see as much of each other as we would have liked, because she was down south. She was always quietly spoken, and would remind me of a little sparrow. When Joyce was 40, one of the children she was looking after died of meningitis. Soon after, her marriage fell apart, partly due to the effects of grief, at the child's death. In nineteen ninety eight, one day Joyce was discovered unconscious in her home by her neighbour and taken to hospital. Before she slipped into a coma, she told the neighbour that she'd been attacked and left for dead. As I sat beside her bedside in the intensive care unit, I willed my sister to live. Joyce had never harmed anyone in her life. She was a perfect mother to her two children and adored her grandchildren. But three days later she died from extensive internal injuries i miss her so much we were left devastated and angry joyce was a hard-working woman who lived for her family i wanted answers but even though the police knew her killer there wasn't enough evidence to charge him no one has ever been convicted of her murder by the time she was killed my second husband and i were divorced but my best friend Marie was there for me, as were my five children. Joyce had left a big gap in my life, and I felt cheated. I was devastated that we'd not been able to catch a killer. I thought things could not get any worse, and kept my family close to me for fear of anything happening to them. Two years later, in 2000, my son Stephen split with his partner of nine years, the mother of his daughter Naomi, and he came to live at home for 18 months. He was tall, dark and handsome, and a really good listener. He loved his music, especially the Beatles and Fleetwood Mac, and everybody loved him. Soon after he came home, he befriended a woman called Elizabeth, and they started to have an on-off relationship. Elizabeth was very keen, but Stephen was cautious and just wanted a friendship. She'd been through a hard time. She was depressed after her baby was stillborn and had recently split up with her husband. She became quite obsessive about Stephen, sending him countless presents, and phoning and texting constantly. I felt there was something not quite right, but Stephen would just say, mum, she just has a broken heart, that's all. Stephen soon afterwards ended the relationship, and was relieved when she seemed to accept it. Six weeks later, He came to see me and said he was having mates over for a birthday celebration. He kissed me goodbye and went to get drinks for the party. That night, I was woken up by a neighbour who told me she'd seen Stephen being taken from his flat on a stretcher into an ambulance. At first, I assumed he'd drunk too much and had an accident. But when I called the hospital, they told me to come immediately and wouldn't tell me how he was. I knew something terrible had happened, but nothing prepared me for the resuscitation unit. A doctor pulled me into a private room and told me that Stephen had died. He was only 31. In the distance, I could hear someone shouting, No! No! It was Chantel. She was howling like an animal in pain. Stephen had died as a result of an injection of diamorphine. Elizabeth had arrived at his flat when all but one of his friends had left. The friend answered the door and Elizabeth told him that she'd arranged to visit Stephen. He was asleep on the sofa after drinking and couldn't contradict her. The friend left them alone, something he now bitterly regrets. Elizabeth then injected Stephen with diamorphine. She dialed 999 and said she couldn't wake him. He died hours later, in a coma. When I saw her at the hospital being comforted by a nurse, I shouted, It's her! She's done something to Stephen! In the end, Elizabeth admitted injecting him, and was sentenced to three and a half years for manslaughter. My four remaining children were struggling to cope afterwards. I saw a look in their eyes that I'd never seen before. Pools of tears waiting to flow. Stephen was the rock in our family. He loved his music, his computer, and most importantly, his daughter Naomi. Stephen was a loving, caring father, and he adored Naomi. Our lives will never be the same without him. Now, double tragedy such as this doesn't happen to all that many families, I'm sure you'll agree and when it does, it must hit people hard, and it did the Taylor family particularly. Each of them felt it, Jean, her ex-husband Anthony, and her remaining four children, Thomas, Natasha and Anthony, but particularly Stephen's sister Chantelle, for his death sent Chantelle into a real downward spiral. Jean continues, Chantel took it very hard. She'd been extremely close to Stephen. They saw each other every day. The day he died, she threw herself against the wall. I saw her crumble in front of me. After that, she suffered bouts of depression. She struggled to cope with carrying the pain around, as we all did. She wasn't happy. Things changed for her. And it's Chantelle that will be the focus of our tale. In 2006, in an interview with the Liverpool Echo newspaper, as she lovingly laid out childhood pictures of Chantelle on a table before her, including a snap taken at her first Holy Communion at St Lawrence's in Watson Street, and another showing her giggling with her brothers and sisters as she celebrated her eighth birthday in 1985, Jean Taylor recalled how Chantelle grew up with her three brothers and elder sister at the immaculately kept family home in Dover Close in Rock Ferry, and how, as a toddler, Chantelle had favoured her Muppets Miss Piggy Doll because the character wasn't very good-looking and not many people liked her. As a point of note, I had a foam rubber kermit when I was youngster also, and I used to bite bloody big chunks out of it, and he was like the best one of the Muppets, wasn't he? Although I always used to prefer animal and... The one who played the saxophone best, myself. Is his name Zoot? I think so, yeah, Zoot. When Chantelle was only three, the strong-willed girl used to pester her grandfather to let her help out behind the counter in his grocery store on Laird Street. It was her grandfather who bought her the Miss Piggy and she really treasured that toy and she only liked it because no one else seemed to. That was typical Chantelle, always reaching out, Jean remembered. Sharing a bedroom with her sister Natasha, the girls would often have rows about Chantelle's collection of dolls that she liked to keep on her bed. Natasha was always very orderly and wanted them out of sight under the bed, but Chantelle wouldn't hear of it because she said they didn't like it in the dark. So there were lots of rows about that. But she loved those dolls. When her dad bought her a talking Cabbage Patch doll, she was on cloud nine for weeks. A former Rock Ferry High School pupil, Chantelle excelled at English and enjoyed sports, and the younger Chantelle used to spend most of her spare time at the swimming pool at Woodchurch Leisure Centre, where she was a keen swimmer, or at West Wirral Riding School in Moreton, where she doted on the horses there and became an accomplished rider alongside her brother, Jean recalled. I can remember opening my front door one day to find Chantelle sitting outside on a horse. She'd been riding and wanted to show me it. All of the other children were flocking around her, and so she got off to let everybody else have a little ride. All her life she doted on things. She had a pet rabbit called Bright Eyes that she absolutely adored for years. And that is the Chantelle her family and her friends are remembering. I remember the Chantelle who absolutely adored bananas and banana custard and the little girl who had Kylie and Jason on her bedroom wall and who would never miss an episode of Neighbours. She had the most beautiful bow-shaped lips too. She always gave me a kiss before she said goodbye to me and she gave the loveliest kisses. But she was a late developer, said Jean and at 14 would be seen in tracksuits and trainers rather than the more glamorous outfits favoured by her friends. She was a bit of a tomboy in those days. I don't think she even started wearing makeup until she was about 17 or 18. She was a very popular girl. Everyone wanted to be friends with Chantelle, probably because she was always so kind and generous. She was a person who really knew how to show love and how to give love. She was always one of the beautiful people. Chantelle dreamt of being a beauty therapist and wanted to train up as one when she left Rock Ferry High School, but fell pregnant with her daughter Whitney at age 16 in 1993 and her plans were put on hold. Two years later, she married her then boyfriend Paul and the couple went on to have another daughter and a son, Aisha and Joseph. It was the happy family setup up had always hoped for, and their home was always full of friends and their children. But by the age of 20, she realised that the relationship with Paul had come to an end. Jean continued. They met when she was 14, and they were together for six years. It was a brave decision to make when she decided to go it alone at such a young age, but she wasn't materialistic at all. As long as the children were happy and playing, She didn't want anything else. She put a home together around the children and it was always full of everybody else's children as well. She was always having barbecues in the back garden for the children, not the adults. The girls were always neat with ribbons and bows in their hair and the baby was always spotless. She wouldn't go anywhere without them. She took a lot of pride in them. Chantelle had even been at college part-time studying for a dream to become beautician. But then, in 2000, came the death of her beloved brother Stephen, the family member Chantelle was closest to, and Chantelle's upbeat nature was crushed. In a sadly familiar story, to deal with her pain and grief at the loss of her brother, Chantelle at first ended up on antidepressants to cope and then turned to heroin as a crutch. Jean continued. We spoke every day, and we became even closer after Stephen died, but grieving for a brother, Chantel went out one night and met the wrong man. She was vulnerable and became trapped. Her life went downhill, and she was a different person. We couldn't tell she was using it at first. She was always immaculately dressed, and you couldn't see any outward changes. But heroin is a strong enemy. It is the hardest thing to fight. Then one day, she just told me. She was an honest person. That was the way she was. She never harmed anyone. It could have happened to anyone's daughter. She told me because she knew she was hooked on it by then, and she needed help. I was still grieving for my son too. And even though we tried to help Chantel to come off the heroin, and she really wanted to come off it, proved to be much stronger than i was i don't really need to echo what a demon heroin is do i a lifelong friend of mine battled an addiction to it for many years and unfortunately though he did conquer it eventually it was only to swap it for another demon that he sadly couldn't conquer and we lost him about a year ago what else i don't really need to echo is sadly how users find the money to pay for such a demon, do I? Jean went on. Soon, she was shoplifting to pay for her habit, and after being banned from the city centre, she started to sell herself on the street. I tried desperately to get her into rehab, but was told there was a 12 to 18 month waiting list. Chantal agreed that we grandparents would look after the kids, and when she was caught shoplifting again, she was sent to prison. But she needed help not punishment she was kind and loving very emotional and really too sensitive for this world when she came out she went straight back on the streets i never gave up looking for treatment for her but there was nothing available in desperation i would follow her to the red light area and try to stop her getting into cars then one day in 2004 I was stopped in the street by a girl Chantelle shared a house with. She told me Chantelle had not come home the night before. The girl had reported it to the police, but they just said something like, that's what you lot do, isn't it? She'll be with a punter. I knew Chantelle would never have walked out on her family. It had been in the early hours of Saturday the 13th of March 2004, when 27-year-old Chantelle had left the home she shared with others, including her on-off boyfriend, in Newland Street in Birkenhead, to head to the local all-night garage on an errand to buy cigarettes, and had not returned. It should have been a relatively short trip there and back, but when she hadn't returned immediately, it was thought that she'd simply gone off with a client, An opportunistic chance for her to earn some cash. It was well into the following day where she was actually missed and was reported as such to the police by her housemate, only to be dismissed, as we've heard. The same girl then told Jean Taylor that Chantelle had failed to come home, and Jean Taylor then took over. A full description of Chantelle and what she was wearing on the night she went missing was collated. About five feet five inches tall, of slim build with long blonde hair dyed brown, and wearing a black leather skirt, black tights, brown boots, a cream top, and a black leather coat. This was then passed on to police, and by four days after Chantelle had last been seen, a full appeal for information concerning her whereabouts was put out by Merseyside Police. By sixteen days after Chantelle had disappeared, Jean told the Liverpool Echo of her fears that her worst nightmare was about to be repeated, believing that the only reason Chantal had not been in touch is because something terrible had happened to her. Since the moment she found out Chantal was missing, Jean described how, with her best friend Marie and several members of the Birkenhead community, they had walked the streets of Wirral and Liverpool putting up posters appealing for help in finding her daughter. She said, Every day, I expect her to knock at the door or to telephone. We normally speak three or four times a week and are very close. This is so out of character. The longest we've ever gone without speaking was a fortnight a few years ago when Chantel went on holiday to Greece. There is no doubt in my mind that she would speak to me if she could after what happened to Stephen. She hasn't even picked up her gyro check. I'm very scared that something bad has happened to her. I don't think she's upped and gone and moved away. She would phone me to reassure me and the children. Describing what had happened to her son, Jean added that the family could not cope with another tragedy, saying, This family couldn't handle it if anything happened to Chantel as well. The two brothers and sister are trying to stay level-headed, but they can't hide the fear in their eyes, especially after what happened to Stephen. I fear for her safety, but I can't face the thought of anything worse. We know what the pain of losing someone is like. It's a pain that has never gone away, and Chantelle was totally cut up by it. As the weeks turned into months with no sign of Chantelle, Jean continued her quest to find her daughter. Chantelle was by this time registered with a missing persons helpline, and the searches for her continued, as well as reported sightings of her followed up all that turned out to be false leads. And by August of that year, with Jean still caring for Chantel's son and her two daughters, sadly, she was less than hopeful about finding her daughter alive. She told the Liverpool Echo that Chantel's three young children still called out at night for their missing mum, and how every time there was a knock at the door or the phone rang, her heart jumped with the hope that it would be Chantel. But by then, each day ended in sadness for all, as, as time passed, the hope of seeing Chantelle's smiling face once again dwindled with it. Indeed, Jean feared then her daughter was dead, saying, I hate it when it rains. I look out of the window of her old bedroom, and all I can think is, if someone has hurt her, is she laying outside somewhere in this rain? It breaks my heart. My granddaughter's asked me where their mummy is and I've promised them I'll find her. I'll keep that promise, whatever it takes. But I do fear the worst. I think she must have come to some harm, that somebody has done something to her. In my darkest hour, I think she must be dead. The police have spent four weeks dredging the river. I've been down there to watch. It was something I had to do. I just need to know what has happened to her. As well as searching the River Mersey over a period of four weeks, police search teams had also trawled nearby Birkenhead Park, the camel Laird shipyard, as well as other parks and derelict buildings across the Wirral in the hope of finding Chantelle, or a vital clue to her whereabouts. Though by that time, they had exhausted many of their lines of inquiry. Knowing of Chantelle's lifestyle, They suspected strongly by that time that something had indeed happened to her, although there was no CCTV footage, no reports of any definitive sightings of Chantel, or even any evidence that had emerged that led them to believe a criminal act had taken place. By that time, Jean was appealing directly to Echo readers, saying, The police have done their best, but they've reached a dead end. Only the public can help me find my daughter now. I've put up 2,000 posters of Chantelle all over Merseyside in the hope someone will recognise her. I've got my own file documenting everything I know. I've been talking to people in Birkenhead to find out if there's the slightest scrap of information that the police don't know. As time goes on and there's no phone call from Chantelle, it gets worse. If she doesn't want to be found, that's okay but I just want her to phone me to let me know she's alright, if somebody out there is keeping her against her will or has harmed her, I will find them, she's a very caring person as well and I just don't think she would put me through this, someone somewhere knows something and I won't rest until I've found her, please come forward and stop this nightmare. Now I'm always struck by the words of any family members whenever I research and write up a tale and I subsequently always include them as full as I can within the episode. Jean's are certainly no exception. I felt the true pain of this lady who's already suffered so much pain and loss in recent years as it was and who became the figurehead for the whole Taylor family thrust into a nightmare that arguably, it has to say, Jean doggedly kept public. She, alongside Chantelle's father Anthony and others, were out constantly searching, putting up posters, getting Chantelle's picture on plasma screens in the shopping centres, and giving several interviews to the local and national press and media. But nothing. Even though by November two thousand and four, a reward for information leading to Chantelle's whereabouts had been offered by Merseyside Police and Crime Stoppers, Jean said. Following its implementation. This is the first positive news we've had in a long time. I just hope this money encourages someone to come forward. I know someone round here knows what has happened to my daughter. I need them to come forward and put us out of our misery. The officer leading the inquiry, Detective Chief Inspector Bill McWilliam, said, I have serious doubts now that Chantelle is still alive but I am totally convinced that someone in Birkenhead knows what has happened to Chantel. She was very involved in a small area of the town, and very well known there. I urge anyone with any information to come forward, in the strictest of confidence if need be. By January 2005, pictures of Chantel had been printed on the side of milk cartons to be sold at Iceland stores throughout the country, in the latest bid to find the mother of three, her being the latest missing person to be featured in a then-initiative by the supermarket chain and the National Missing Persons Helpline, which had reportedly helped to resolve more than a third of the cases featured. I don't think it's something that they do anymore, Iceland, and you have to think, why on earth not? What a beneficial tool that is if it helps in more than a third of the cases. It's mind-boggling why it isn't just an accepted thing to do, and more chains don't jump on it, it really is. Jean Taylor said at the time, I shouldn't get my hopes up, but with each thing I do, I hope she might ring, but there's still be nothing. Now, I have a daughter that I don't know where she is, and it's a horrendous thing to deal with day by day, and hour by hour. I never know if someone is going to knock on the door with some bad news. Part of you just wants to believe she's out there somewhere safe and well, but we're having to come to terms with the fact that she isn't. It's left a big hole in our lives. However, she added that she had to remain strong for her other three children, as well as Chantelle's three children, saying, they look to me as the one who will find her. Chantelle's sister Natasha, meanwhile, said the community had rallied around her family. Adding. It's a mark of how much people thought of her, how kind they've been. By the time a year had passed, and how unimaginable that must be, it must just be horrendous, mustn't it? On the anniversary of Chantelle's disappearance, her mum Jean revealed publicly how her daughter had become hooked on drugs before she went missing, hoping that talking about Chantelle's addiction for the first time would possibly lead to fresh clues about her whereabouts. Explaining how Chantelle had turned to drugs when she was unable to cope with the death of her brother Stephen in June 2000, Jean said, "Chantelle was a brilliant mother from a good home where people loved her, but she became a heroin addict and fell into a cycle of drug abuse. I did not want Chantelle dismissed as just another addict, but I feel people need to know now because there may be addicts out there who came into contact with her and who know something i am appealing for them to get in touch the not knowing has been horrendous she is my daughter though and i will never give up although two detectives had been appointed to keep working on the case by that time police believed very firmly that chantelle was no longer alive Senior Officer Detective Chief Inspector Bill McWilliam told The Echo This has been a lengthy and protracted investigation with huge involvement from the force. We have deployed dozens of officers on huge search operations over land and water stretching across the UK. Every single suggested sighting of Chantel has been followed up, but the investigation is still very much live and active, and we are in close contact with the family keeping them informed of what has been happening and by june of that year chantelle's disappearance had turned into a murder inquiry now details are sketchy here it's a frustrating one to research this cases because there are a lot of gaps in the information available but on the morning of the 20th of june 2005 it's reported that two men aged 31 and 50 were arrested on suspicion of killing the mother of three, while at the same time, search teams were sent to four sites in the Birkenhead area, including once again the former Camel Laird site, in the hunt for Chantel's body. For several hours, they carried out detailed searches at each site, and questioned the pair over a two-day period before releasing them on bail, though they failed to discover any remains. Both men were later ruled out of the inquiry. Jean Taylor described later how friends and family had rallied round as they waited to see if Chantelle had been found, saying For a few hours after the arrests and the searches, we really thought the worst. We were devastated. Although I have the great fear that she's no longer with us, I will never give up the hope that Chantelle is still out there alive and well until I have proof. I will never give up the search for her. The following month, Jean's fears were to an extent realised. To an extent. I'm sure that we all remember, and especially if you're in the UK, the terror attacks that blighted London on the 7th of July 2005. The four coordinated suicide attacks carried out by Islamic terrorists that targeted commuters travelling on the city's public transport system during the morning rush hour. The country's first Islamic suicide attack, 7 7, as it's more commonly referred to today, led to many horrific and haunting scenes, the injuries to more than 700 people, and the deaths of 52 UK residents of 18 different nationalities. Though the actions were rightly widely condemned, within hours of the atrocity, websites such as You Will Fail inviting all people to post there and express their resolution not to be afraid, intimidated or cowed by the cowardly act of terrorism, were established because you do stamp that shit right out and stand strong in the face of such horror to make it not win. And the Muslim Council of Britain issued a statement in which it utterly condemned the indiscriminate acts of terror, there were instances of unrest and perceived retaliation throughout the country by those who, for want of a better word, have tunnel vision. There were assaults, anti Islamic graffiti appeared, and several mosques were attacked and firebombed. It does nothing this except sinks people to approaching the same kind of level as people who commit atrocities such as 7 7. One of the places that a mosque was firebombed was Birkenhead, where, two days after 7-7, in the early hours of July the 9th, a petrol bomb was thrown at the door of the Wirral Islamic Centre and Shah Jalal Mosque on Birkenhead's whetstone lane. The second imam of Shah Jahal Mosque, Bashirulam Maud, was living above the mosque at the time of the attack and subsequently had to be rescued by fire crews through an upstairs window as he was trapped upstairs by the flames because all of the mosque windows had mesh over them, due to previous stoning incidents. Thankfully, after being treated for smoke inhalation, he was otherwise unhurt. Again, and this is where the frustrating gaps in available information about the case shine through, but reportedly, a jacket that was found abandoned at the scene of the bombing was invaluable in leading police to the bomber. Whether it was through traces of his DNA on the garment or not is unreported. But police, only five days later, on the 14th of July 2005, arrived at the Elmswood Road home in the Oxton area of Birkenhead of Stephen Allen Wynne, a 27 year old part time builder, former soldier, and ex pupil of Rock Ferry High School, who was subsequently arrested for the Wirral Islamic Centre arson. Whilst the search of his home was being undertaken following his arrest, police discovered a document hidden underneath the kitchen sink. I refer to it as a document because various sources describe it differently as a note, a letter or a poem and which varies in length with one source claiming it was some 14 pages long. Full details of this document have never been revealed but it is reliably claimed to have peaked and dipped in tone and its contents referred and paralleled to many aspects of Wynne's own life. Several lines of it were reportedly a poem, containing bitter references to benefits paid to asylum seekers, and at least four lines of it, again written as a poem, referred to the murder of a woman, which the author claimed in part was a worthless junkie whore. Now, remembering the missing Chantelle here, and taking into account the fact that she and Wynne were the same age, and had attended the same school. The spidey sense was off the charts here, and when one of the officers investigating the disappearance of Chantel Taylor, nearly 16 months earlier, asked Wynne if he knew anything about her disappearance, he told officers almost immediately, Yes, I murdered her. Just like that. In his subsequent police interview, he told detectives that he accepted murdering Chantel but that he couldn't remember carrying the crime out. However, his house was to yield further forensic discoveries to support his claim. On the 19th of July 2005, Stephen Wynn was charged with the murder of Chantel Taylor and following appearing before Liverpool magistrates, was subsequently remanded to Manchester prison on charges of this, and arson with intent to endanger life after setting alight Shah Jalal Mosque on July the 9th. It was the news that Chantel's family hoped against hope that they wouldn't ever get, and yet, with no body, how do you ever even begin to accept that something as painful as that is true? On the 1st of August a touching tribute to Chantelle, led by her mother Jean was made as family and friends gathered outside Wynne's home the then boarded up address in Elmswood Road where it was believed the young mother had met her death. Round a hundred gatherers laid flowers at the house and stood in quiet tribute and reflection as Father Terence Boslan of St Joseph's Church read from John chapter 14 verses 1 to 3 a prayer for the grieving. Jean had asked for the service even though she believed in her heart that she would never be able to say goodbye to her beloved daughter, explaining, How can we say goodbye when there's no body? I wanted to come here today because I wanted to give people the chance to remember Chantel and express their love for her. I also asked the priest to come here and bless the house because that is where we think she died. Today's service was just going to be for a few close family and friends, but word spread and a lot of people wanted to come. Chantal was well loved and the number of people here today shows how popular she was. The Chantal that we've read about in some newspapers recently is not somebody any of us recognise. I think people have somehow forgotten that it was someone's daughter, mother and sister who was murdered in the most horrifying way imaginable. Chantelle's father Anthony added, This memorial needed to happen because for the last 16 months we've not been able to rest. All we have is the hope that we will find her body one day and be able to give her the funeral she deserves. Chantelle's children were too upset to attend the memorial, but they wrote a short message which was placed prominently amongst the many tributes, which read, To Mum. We will always love you, and we will never forget you. Just senseless, isn't it? eh? No words. Four days later, Stephen Wynne appeared at Liverpool Crown Court via video link from Manchester Prison to once again hear the charges against him. The public gallery of the court packed with many friends and supporters of Gene Taylor. Several carried banners depicting such statements as Justice for Chantel, or Evil Will Not win. the last word written as Wynne's surname, an act they were to repeat at every one of Wynne's subsequent court appearances. Wynne, wearing the standard prison-issue round-neck grey sweater and tracksuit bottoms, only spoke in acknowledgement of his name and last known address as he was further remanded in custody until November 3rd when he would be expected to enter his pleas to both charges he faced. When he subsequently again appeared at the court on Thursday, November 3rd, this time in person, he pleaded not guilty to the charges against him, and a subsequent trial date was fixed to begin on January 24th, 2006. However, on the opening day of Wynne's trial, he offered a change of plea and appeared stood in the glass-fronted dock of the court, dressed smartly in a dark blue suit, white shirt and navy blue tie, answering, Guilty miss, when the clerk of the court had put the murder charge to him, leaving members of Chantel's family sat in stunned silence. On an earlier occasion, Wynne had already also pleaded guilty to arson being reckless as to whether life was endangered, after setting the Shah Jalal Mosque in Birkenhead alight on July 9th of the previous year. The following day, ahead of his sentencing, the court and members of Chantel's family heard of the tragic mum of three's final hours. Neil Fluitt KC, prosecuting, said that the former soldier and father of one Wynne had enjoyed his army service in the Cheshire Regiment and had had a successful career but had later been dishonorably discharged after being caught smoking cannabis, and later worked casually as a building labourer. He told the court that Wynne and Chantel Taylor, who the court was told was last seen by a friend also living in the same Newland Street house, in the early hours of March 13th 2004, had attended the same school, and as both had children of a similar age, had attended the same children's parties. They were known to each other. Wynne had told police that as he walked home from a night out in the early hours of March the 13th, he was approached by Chantel in the Livingstone Road area of Birkenhead, whom he met by chance, and after soliciting her services, who he agreed to accompany him back to his home in Elmswood Road in a taxi. After arriving here, and on top of the cocktail of alcohol, cocaine and cannabis that Wynne had already consumed, The pair then proceeded to smoke heroin, Chantelle smoking some of her own supply. While they sat chatting and smoking, Wynne had revealed to Chantelle that he had an ounce of the drug which he'd bought to sell, showing her the stash that he had. The pair then proceeded to have sex, and it was as Chantelle was about to leave following this, that Wynne realised she'd stolen some of this heroin, seeing it partially concealed under a top, and so stopped her leaving the bedroom as he demanded it back. Winn had initially claimed no memory of what happened next in his police interview, but instead claimed to have next remembered coming around on the bathroom floor, covered head to toe in Chantelle's blood, the bloodied cleaver, a blood-stained saw, and Chantelle's severed head and arms lying beside a semi-dismembered body in the bath. He was clear, however, that he had then taken the unwrapped body parts from the bathroom and stored them in a disused water tank in the loft of his house before he'd placed his own blood-stained clothing and chantelles into rubbish bags which he placed out in the backyard. The cleaver and saw, he claimed, he had encased into a block of concrete which also remained in the backyard. Police had later found them there exactly as Wynne had described, encased in a concrete block propped up against a wall and complete with a large knife, alongside five black bin bags containing blood-stained bedding and items of clothing. It was later suggested that the part-time builder Wynne had planned to sneak the block into the foundations of the next home he worked on, so the weapons would never be discovered. Wynne claimed that he had lived in the Elmswood Road house for almost two weeks afterwards with the body parts in his loft, but by this time he could no longer cope with the unbearable smell from their decomposition, and so took Chantel's head and arms in a rucksack to a local beauty spot, Roydon Park, in Frankby, where he hid them in some woods. The remainder of her body, Wynne claimed, he had placed into a large builder's rubble bag that he had deposited at Bidston Tip. During the next 15 months, Wynne had meticulously cleaned the house, buying new carpets for it, and even redecorating the rooms inside. Though extensive searches were undertaken at each of these locations, no traces of Chantel were found there. But it wasn't just Wynne's patchy confession that had led him to the dock his version of events had had to be forensically corroborated as he was held on remand. Because Chantel had a criminal record, her DNA profile was on the National DNA Database, and when a DNA profile had been obtained from the extensive staining on the clothing and bedding found in the bin bags in Wynne's garden, it was found to be a perfect match for Chantel. It was not until scientists from Forensic Alliance had scoured the house that it was discovered the attack had taken place in the bedroom and Chantel's body had been moved to the loft. Forensic scientist Stephanie Fellows told the court, The house had been cleaned and redecorated, so it entailed taking the bath panels off, using the most sensitive forensic techniques to search for blood. We also had to take samples of wallpaper. I was in the house for three days, but spent six months examining property from the house. There had been found no visible signs of blood staining in the bathroom, apart from microscopic traces of blood, which, when tested, was found to be Wynne's own. No visible signs of blood staining had been found in the bedroom of the house either, but when the carpet was lifted, chemical screening revealed the presence of blood staining to the floor joists, which, when tested, proved to be a DNA match for Chantel. Minute fragments of bone were also found there. So, his story of moving the body from the bathroom to the loft is already a bit shot to pieces, isn't it? No blood or body tissue was either visible or detectable by chemical screening anywhere in the loft, although scientists did discover numerous adult flies and empty puperia under the plastic sheeting that covered the disused water tank that Wynn claimed to have kept in, Forensic entomologist Dr. Samantha Pickles later identified the flies and puperia as belonging to several types, including flesh flies, and, taking into account their presence in such large number, and the fact that the pupae would have continued to develop to adult flies after their food source had been removed, it seemed likely that this infestation had occurred and ended in the loft. If it had been the body parts that the insects had been feeding off, they had been there for some time. Toxicological testing of the puparia by Dr Alex Allum also revealed in many a heavy presence of the heroin metabolite morphine, which suggested that the larvae had either fed on, or passed through, some substance containing it. It neatly supported Wynne's claim that Chantel's body had been stored in the loft of his home for some time, but not the claim that her body parts had been taken, unwrapped, from the bathroom immediately to the loft, dripping blood. No one can clean up that well, can they? It had led him to the dock of Liverpool Crown Court, where, facing up to what he'd done, he pleaded guilty to both charges. Concerning firebombing the mosque, Mr. Flewitt said this had occurred less than 48 hours after the London bombings and was a religiously aggravated offence. When asked for his ethnicity for a police form, Winard replied, English and proud. Winnard discussed the London attacks with some ex army friends and had later texted one to say he planned to attack a mosque in retaliation mr Flewitt said however it was accepted that he had not known that anyone was in the premises at the time and that win had pleaded guilty to arson being reckless whether the life was endangered andrew Menery casey defending said that win bitterly regretted what he'd done before these offenses He told the court that Wynne had led an unremarkably ordinary life, and said that Wynne fully expected to be caught in the weeks after the murder and was racked by guilt over it. He even went to a police station to confess, but his nerves failed him at the last minute. Mr Mennery said, He recognised if he did, that he would never see his young son again. Part of the reason for committing the arson offence was a cry to be arrested. In which case, and he confessed, he still wouldn't see his young son, would he? Don't know if I believe that myself. But oh yes, his barrister offered up the excuse that Wynne had committed the arson as he wanted to be arrested, and that the arson attack on the Wirral Islamic Centre in Birkenhead, alongside it being religiously aggravated, was also partly an attempt to be arrested so he could confess to the murder the court heard. Mr Menry added, His mind was bordering on being destroyed by the guilt he was experiencing as a consequence of committing the murder. As we've heard, Stephen Wynn had first told police that after smoking heroin, he didn't remember attacking 27-year-old Chantel, or hacking off her head and arms. But after the findings of forensic scientists, the powerful and compelling evidence, even without a body, He had finally admitted that when Chantal had refused to return his heroin, he had struck her in the neck with a meat cleaver, and, bleeding heavily, she had fallen at the foot of the bed, dying almost instantly. In the basis of his guilty plea, accepted by the Crown, Wynne said he had the meat cleaver in his bedroom in case he was burgled. Wynne had then used the cleaver, a saw and a large knife, to dismember the body before hiding it. Jalen Wynne for life, presiding Mr Justice McCoon, said that on the night of the murder, Wynne had drunk a large amount of alcohol and had taken cannabis and cocaine. He said, That propensity to consume such substances lies at the root of all that has gone wrong in your life. He said that he accepted the murder had not been premeditated and she quickly died from the injuries inflicted in that single blow. He had also not targeted his murder victim specifically, and the violence he had used was utterly out of character for him. But, he added, She resisted you, and so you struck her to the side of the neck with a meat cleaver, which you kept in your bedroom. An attack with a weapon of that character is savage in the extreme. Wynne's mitigation was the fact that there was no premeditation and his lack of intention to kill. He was told that he would serve a minimum of 21 years imprisonment for the murder of Chantelle Taylor before ever being considered for release and a six-year sentence for the arson attack on the Islamic Centre to run concurrently. Wynne was then taken down to begin his sentence. Following the verdict, Chantelle's mother Jean said, What I don't understand is Chantelle and Wynne used to play together at children's parties when they were little. I will never know why he did it. He's a cold, callous killer, and I'm so grateful that he's been taken off the streets so he can't kill again. Life was what he deserved. I've lost my beautiful Chantelle, my daughter who was much loved, a sister, and the mother of three children. I'll see my daughter again in heaven, but he'll never go to heaven for what he's done. But Chantelle was still lost, of course. The senior officer in charge of the case, Detective Chief Superintendent Ray Galloway, admitted that because of the length of time that had elapsed since the killing, Chantel's body would now never be found. The family had always hoped that one day they would be given Chantel's body so they could give her a proper burial, but after interviewing Wynne in prison shortly before his trial, police feared that they would never recover the rest of her remains. Detective Superintendent Galloway said, Wynn has maintained that the information he has given us in relation to the disposal of Chantelle's body is accurate. He says he disposed of her torso in a skip in Bidston, and her head and hands in Roydon Park, but despite four significant searches of those areas, we have not found any trace of her. The day after Wynn was jailed, Jean and Chantelle's father Anthony made an emotional journey to Royden Park on what would have been their daughter's 29th birthday. They left flowers and notes of remembrance there and expressed hope to get permission to one day set up a plaque or a bench there in Chantelle's honour. If nothing else, it will give her children somewhere to go and remember their mother, permanent reminder of the lovely woman she was, said Jean. On the second anniversary of chantelle's death her family held their first memorial service in her honor at saint werberg's church in grange precinct in birkenhead the first time they were able to recognize the date as that time the previous year they were still clinging to the hope that she was only missing from home and would one day return though her remains had never been discovered The few minute fragments of bone and DNA evidence from Chantel that were discovered at Wynne's home were being held by the Liverpool coroner, and the family had pleaded for them to be released so they could hold a funeral and an internment for her. A plea backed by detectives, who said that the fragments could not form any kind of defence in the event Wynne appealed against his conviction. Chantel's mother Jean told the Wirral Globe ahead of the service, It is the first chance we've had to hold a proper memorial service for Chantel. It will be a very emotional occasion, as we've had such a roller coaster two years. But it's a chance for her family and friends, and anyone else in the wider community who would like to pay their respects to Chantel, and we hope as many people as possible can attend. The family has been through a terrible time, but this is a way to help the healing process. It won't change the fact that two of my children are gone, but it will help everybody to remember them. However, although Wynne did not appeal his conviction, and he couldn't really, could he, pleading guilty, he did appeal against the length of his minimum term, and at the beginning of July 2006, his appeal was heard at London's Criminal Appeal Court, where a panel of judges, led by Mrs Justice Robb, slashed his minimum jail term from 21 years to 18 explaining that as nasty as this case was in her own words the sentencing judge had sought too long a minimal jail term when considering its aggravating and mitigating features for wind's guilty plea his assertion that the murder was not premeditated and that he only kept the meat cleaver in his bedroom in case he was burgled should all have been taken into account in response Jean taylor devastated by the decision as you would rightly be wouldn't you told the Wirral Globe I can't believe this has happened I think that this judge has not considered that Chantelle's family are also the victims of this her children have had counseling and still haven't come to terms with her death for 16 months I was searching up and down the country for my daughter I had Chantelle's photo on milk cartons across the country I'd even put up a picture of Chantelle on a lamppost outside his mother's house without realizing how in god's name can anyone see any sort of mitigating factors in what Wynne did to my daughter he butchered her with a meat cleaver cut up her body and hid it in his loft and then dumped the remains in different parts of wirral he's never told the police exactly where he left her and we have to live with that we know that six months after he murdered chantelle he held a Halloween party for his young son in his garden, all the while knowing that Chantel's clothes and the cleaver and saw were hidden nearby, and everyone says he acted normally. How could you when you've done that to someone? How can anyone say they're mitigating circumstances in such a horrific crime? It's madness. Absolute madness. Following the decision to slash Wynne's minimum sentence, Chantel's father, Anthony, began a series of public demonstrations to draw attention and support for the family's disgust, scaling Bidston Bridge on the 7th of July and draping banners across it, reading, Win, you won't win. Our justice is a joke. No justice for Chantel, and Life should mean life. No parole. His son, Anthony Taylor Jr., told the Daily Post newspaper, I didn't know anything about this beforehand my dad must have been planning it in secret for a while I got a phone call from one of my friends telling me he was up there and I came down to see it for myself my dad's doing the right thing by protesting like this because of what that monster did we haven't been able to give Chantel a proper funeral with the full support of his family then Tony Taylor repeated this two days later by climbing Holy Cross Church in Birkenhead, this time vowing not to come down until he'd spoken to his local MP, Frank Field. As police cordoned off the area around the church, neighbours stood watching on the street and passing motorists sounded their horns in support. Three weeks later, he climbed to the top of the Williamson Art Gallery in Birkenhead to again display banners calling for justice for his daughter and he was shortly afterwards back protesting on top of Wallasey Tunnel, causing chaos for commuters as part of the road was already closed, this time after being told by the Criminal Injuries Compensation Authority that Chantelle Taylor's criminal convictions for shoplifting ruled her children out of receiving compensation for her death. When he eventually came down, Anthony vowed he would continue to protest in a bid to draw attention to the issue, and said my daughter's murderer thought she was worthless she wasn't she was loved and adored she was a lovely mother of three young children who had been misled she wouldn't harm a fly and was too trusting for her own good this is disgusting it's the final insult to Chantelle's memory my grandchildren should get compensation no matter what happened to their mother A funeral for Chantelle Taylor was finally held on Friday the 13th of July 2006, where the few existing remains of Chantelle were interred at a burial at Landerkin Cemetery in Woodchurch, following a funeral service that was held at Our Lady's Church in Birkenhead's Cavendish Street. Ahead of the service, Jean had specifically asked anyone wishing to send flowers to order them in pink and white, Chantelle's favourite colours, and added, It's only because these fragments are left behind that we can hold this funeral, nothing that Wynne has done. The Crown Prosecution Service advised us to organise it, as we may never know what he did with Chantel. Even this will not give us closure, and it's heartbreaking to have to wait two and a half years to bury my daughter. It will be an emotional day, and if Chantel had no children, I would have kept the fragments in a casket in my room until I died. Now we have to concentrate on burying Chantelle and reminding ourselves and everyone else what a beautiful, vibrant woman and mother she was. It's our time to remember Chantelle and not the monster that took her away from us. Everything will be white to celebrate her life. She had a whole life ahead of her and it was cruelly cut short. She wasn't a judgmental person. She accepted everyone and that's why the funeral will be open to all. A white coach, pulled by horses and accompanied by pipers, carried Chantelle's casket from the family home where she spent so many happy years, Dover Close, to Our Lady's Church, where the white coffin, decorated with lilies and pink roses, was then carried into the church by pallbearers. A funeral car outside was laden with a mountain of flowers, which included white blooms spelling out the words soulmate, sister, daughter and best mate. Chantelle's mother and father then led more than a hundred mourners into the packed church, many of them weeping and wearing black suits decorated with a single pink flower, Chantelle's favourite colour. At the culmination of the moving service, which included some of Chantelle's favourite songs being played, such as the theme music from the film Titanic and James Blunt's song, You're Beautiful, which was dedicated to her by her three young children, four white doves were released, representing one for Jean and one each for Chantel's three children. Coincidentally, a funeral took place six years to the day that the family had buried Chantel's brother Stephen, Jean said later. It was a coincidence that we chose that day, And it was only afterwards that we realised it was the same day we buried Stephen. Chantel never got over losing her brother, so it seems fitting. Indeed it does, doesn't it? Following the funeral, Chantel's family made an official complaint to the police about how her case was handled, citing a lack of urgency by officers, and believing that because of her daughter's drug addict and sex worker background, Vital hours were wasted after she was first reported missing. Jean said, I know there were officers and detectives on that inquiry who took it personally and spent more hours than they should have done. They couldn't have done any more if it had been their own family and I commend them for it. But there was still a stigma attached to Chantel because of what she was. The police waited far too long to turn a missing person inquiry into a possible murder inquiry. At the beginning of the inquiry, when a friend reported her missing, she was told Chantelle would come back. I really do believe that early on, detectives and police thought she was coming back. Crime Stoppers do not offer rewards unless it is a possible murder inquiry. The reward should have been put out sooner rather than later. We all make mistakes, and we all turn to the police. They did a good job, but they made mistakes, and they've got to learn by them especially when it's a working girl or an addict, because they're more vulnerable. I just want it to be a lesson learned and for officers to do some training. Now, a police spokesperson later confirmed that an investigation relating to the handling of the Chantel Taylor murder inquiry had been launched by the force's professional standards department, although its findings are unavailable whilst researching. Jean had also on the eve of Chantelle's funeral launched a national campaign calling for Parliament to end soft-touch sentencing and rights to appeal for killers who plead guilty when they appear in court. Jean explained, At the time he was sentenced, someone said I had pleaded with him to tell me where Chantelle's body was, but that's not true. I want to find out where Chantelle's body is, but I have never pleaded with Wynne to tell me I would never plead with him. I don't want anything from him, and I wouldn't believe him even if he told me. As long as he thinks he has control, he will never tell us. When I found out that Wynne had had his sentence cut, I felt physically sick. That day, I went to Chantel's coffin in the Chapel of Rest, and promised her that I would fight until my dying day to keep him and others like him behind bars. It's time the government woke up and looked at what they're doing. Sentences are far too soft, and it means dangerous people are being allowed to roam the streets. In the years following Wynne's conviction, Jean and Chantel's remarkable family have turned their tragedy into positive action, beginning there in 2008, when Jean advertised in the Liverpool Echo for victims' families to join her on a march to Downing Street with 35,000 signatures that she'd gathered to say, life should mean life, for first degree murder and murder with intent, as well as tougher sentences for manslaughter. This led on to the creation of the charity Families Fighting for Justice, an organisation that works for change for victims' families of homicide, as well as being a peer support group for those who've lost someone to acts of murder or manslaughter and of which Jean is a founding member. Her grandson Joseph, Chantel's son, at age 12 also founded the charity Ollie, Our Lost Loved Years, for kids whose parents or grandparents have been unlawfully killed. Talking to Heart Radio at the time about it, Joseph said, It's so I can talk to them and understand how they feel. It's hard to just talk to someone at school and talk about it. I can't do it i have to talk to someone who's been through it a remarkable young man indeed and today ollie helps more than 600 children Jean said it makes me feel very proud and i'm sure as it's mother's looking down looking down very proudly i'm sure that she would be too Jean has also penned a children's book about a lovable penguin facing loss called the journey which police officers and others working with children of murder victims now use as a relatable aid to assist them the chief aim when writing it was to prevent those whom Jean calls forgotten victims from falling through the cracks and becoming embroiled in violence themselves explaining picture a kid who's lost his mum He drifts into thought, loses concentration, his schoolwork goes downhill, and he's classed as naughty. A ball of anger caused by hurt develops, and that child becomes a troubled young person. Children often appear to bat off grief quite easily, but it can fester. I want them to know, in us, they can always find a friend. Fantastic that, isn't it, eh? links to both ollie and families fighting for justice can be found in the episode show notes stephen wynn has been briefly outside prison walls since his conviction in 2006 however when in june 2014 prison bosses allowed him to return to bergenhead to pay respects following the death of his sister Wynne had hoped to attend the funeral and go to Landecken Cemetery, where a granite memorial to Chantel is in place, but was refused permission. Ministry of Justice source said, Wynne went to the Chapel of Rest for a private visit. He was escorted by two members of staff and was in handcuffs. He was refused compassionate leave to attend the funeral. Jean Taylor told of her upset that Wynne be allowed to step foot in Birkenhead without her knowledge, saying They said he was going to pay his respects. Wynne had no respect for my daughter when he did the evil act he did. I don't think he knows what the word respect means. For him to use that word, he will never know what respect is. I am absolutely appalled. I'm disgusted. It is sick. I found out on Sunday from a member of the public Nobody from the Victim Liaison Service or the Ministry of Justice thought to tell me how much has it cost the taxpayer for him to be allowed out. My family, my daughter's children, her brother and sister were all from Birkenhead. We could have been there and suddenly confronted with a killer at the cemetery. The funeral home is less than three miles away from my son's house. It would be my worst nightmare to come face to face with him. No disrespect to his sister who's lost a life, but the talk of respect horrifies me. I don't think it's right that he should have been allowed out. What he's left behind is a family that will never be the same again. He took Christmas, he took Easter, holidays and birthdays from us. It has destroyed this family, but it won't put us on our knees. I will do everything in my power to make sure he stays behind bars. Stephen Wynn remains in prison to this day, his proposed move to an open prison being blocked by Justice Secretary Dominic Raab only earlier this year. Jean Taylor today still works tirelessly with families fighting for justice and Ollie to make good the promise that she made to Chantel many years ago, both going from strength to strength and helping so many people as a result and has adapted the words from the black granite plaque that stands as a memorium to Chantelle in Landekin Cemetery into the slogan for the charity, reading Families fighting for justice, from one moment in time, leaving us a lifetime of suffering. It's one of the more tragic stories that I've come across this one is, such a sad tale. Yet, as with some that I've covered previously, there is a sense of uplift here within it also. I find the Taylor family, particularly Gene Taylor, truly remarkable people, I really do, and I'm filled with nothing but admiration for Jean and her family for taking so much unbelievable tragedy for them to experience, for come on, how many families are blighted by murder three times within an eight-year period? and using their grief to instead bring positivity and assistance for people in such beneficial ways. I find that incredible, and so touching, my heart went out to them, and they're truly an inspiration. It is such a tragic shame that Chantelle will more than likely never be found now due to the passage of time. For, and this is if Wynne's claims of where he disposed of her body parts are true, Her remains will perhaps today have been removed somewhere across Merseyside alongside other tons of landfill, or will have been scattered by scavenging animals. Either way, such a tragic and undignified end for a mother who lost her way somewhat. As for Wynne's minimum sentence being reduced, I have to agree that is a travesty that, regardless of whether he was under the influence of drugs, alcohol, whatever, or no premeditation this is still someone who had a meat cleaver in his bedroom in case he was burgled so this is someone quite prepared to use heinous violence anyway and who chose to that night rather than remonstrate as for firebombing a mosque that just supports it further doesn't it and as for it being a deliberate attempt to get arrested bullshit bullshit okay he ultimately pleaded guilty but only when he realised the futility of his account against the compelling scientific evidence. It's one thing that Rab got right there, keeping him in Category A, and for denying her family the chance to recover and bury Chantel properly, he deserved no reduction in sentence whatsoever. I completely support the Taylor family there. I lord you not to think of Wynne as the episode draws to a close though, for he's merely another nondescript killer who ruined his own life alongside the lives of several others but instead think of chantelle and how the road she traveled down is one that so many can so easily find themselves on take the time to think of her think also of her remarkable family and how they've turned their grief into good i find them an inspiration as i said before Please also take time to check out Families and Ollie to read of some of the good work that they do. As I said, the links to them are in the episode show notes. I would love, as always, hearing your thoughts and feedback on the tragic story of Chantelle Taylor in the episode Someone's Daughter, Someone's Mum, which you can do so in the thread that is up in the show's Facebook discussion group or through any of the show's social media links. As per ever, You know I'm always happy to discuss wherever with you, kind lot. I really am. I shall be back very soon, as we are now running into the final few episodes of the series, of this series, in which I look forward to you joining me for. But we shall, of course, be back after a short break with Series 8 early in the new year. Until we next speak then, I thank you kindly for joining me in the mog. And all that remains for me to say is that I've been... I still am, and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast, wishing you all good and safe times, and I shall catch you very soon. Take care all, stay safe, and goodbye for now.